to bed. I said she'd skip them, but she didn't. So, all right, we're going to pick up right there. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're going to pick up right there at the end of Nehemiah 12, so if you want to stay there, that would be great. Last week, we were looking at, we finished up on chapter 11, and what happened is Nehemiah and the people, as they finished the wall, they gather together, they have this big worship service, and the people ask them to begin to read from the law to them. There's this moment where they recognize that the position that they're in is because they had wandered away from God. They recognize that there would have been no need to rebuild if it hadn't been destroyed. And it wouldn't have been destroyed if they had remained there. And if they had remained there, they could have remained there had they been obedient to God. And so as they play this back, as they finish their community, as they're tightening up everything and getting it together, they ask, hey, would you read us the law? And at the end of this long day of reading scripture and worshiping together, they make a covenant. They join together in a commitment around three things. One is they are going to keep faith central in their homes, that the number one priority in their homes and their families will be their faith. And the second one is that honor, they will honor God in the law. And the, one of the ways that they will do that is they will give one day a week to God. Right? They will spend one day a week focused on God. And the third one is that they will commit financially to the work of the ministry, to the work of worship in their community. And so they covenant together and a bunch of people sign their names to this. All the heads of the houses of the family sign their name to this. And they say, listen, we will commit to these things. And if we do not, let us be cursed by God. And so they sign their names with this with this big commitment to them. And we're going to see what happens today. As you might imagine, it doesn't go the way they hope it will, right? So I'm going to put this main idea on, this, on the screen today. Uh, Reformed and reforming, a, a Reformation slogan, so about a slogan out of Christianity 500 years ago, Semper Reformanda means always reforming. Change requires constant focus because we fall backwards into sin so easily, right? We'll scale this down to a small scale. Just think you and I, right? We leave here with good intentions. We hear something that we feel God is drawing us to do or, or to not do, right? And we leave here and maybe this afternoon we do well by this evening. We're already back in it, right? Maybe is that just me? It's just me? Okay, good. All right, so totally just me. We're good. All right. You guys are perfect. So the people in the story are more like me. And so there's this idea that we're reformed, we're fixing something, and we're always reforming, we're always drawing near to God. That is, as soon as even we get a handle on something, maybe we overcome a sin in our life. Maybe we kind of beat back an addiction, do something. That there's always something that God is calling us towards, that we're always changing as a church. We're always looking, okay, how can we be more of who God has called us to be? And then when we achieve whatever that thing might be, then we ask again, what is it that God is calling us to do? So reformed and reforming, simple reformander, always, always keeping our eye on what God is calling us to. So Nehemiah 12, right where we left off, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So Nehemiah is appointing leaders, right? 
one of their commitments was going to be to honor God one day a week. They're going to Sabbath. Again, they're not going to work. They're not going to just sleep. They're not going to just take naps. They're going to press into God one day a week. And so because of that, ministry is going to increase. And another thing they commit to is that everybody will own the responsibility of funding the ministry. And so because of this, Nehemiah knows, hey, we're going to need some leadership over this as people bring their contributions, as they bring their tithes and their offerings, and as they come and spend more time worshiping on their Sabbath, we're going to need more help. And so Nehemiah appoints leaders over that. I love this line, they rejoiced over the the priests and the Levites who ministered. They rejoiced over those leaders who take on the task of helping moving them forward. Verse 45. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. I want to look at this purification piece really quick. It was read earlier by Lily. Uh, talks that they go through this process of purification. Then these leaders come on. They have to go through this process of purification. And there is this Old Testament theme all throughout it that there are things that you could do that would make you ritually impure, that there were things you could do. It could be as simple as touching a dead body, right? Burying a family member, right? Would make you ritually unclean. It wasn't necessarily sin, It was unclean, but just the same, this uncleanness would keep you out of the presence of God. And this exists in the Old Testament for a lot of reasons, one of them being to remind us that sometimes life just happens to us, right? And that things take place and they draw us away from being near to God. They draw us out of the presence of God. And so in place of that, there was a purification ritual. In fact, early baptism was for baptizing, was cleansing people that wanted to become a part of Judaism, right? But there was as simple as the bronze laver as you entered into the, the temple courts where you would wash. And it was a ceremonial reminder that life draws you out of the presence of God, but God has provided a way back. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the gospel, if you will where God creates us and and designs us and loves us and teaches us this is how you live. This is how you're made to be. Do this and and everything is good. You'll, You'll stay in my presence. You'll be in my grace, right? In my presence, the way you were designed to be. But as you know, human history, you know, sin happens. People sin. People choose their way away from God. Adam and Eve sin. You and I sin. All the people long before us come in and they choose their own way. And sin is simply, in its most simple terms, it's me choosing my way over God's way. You choosing your way over God's way, whatever that might be. And so people sin and therefore draw themselves out of the presence of God. But God in his grace and his mercy provides that way back. Right, We're leaning into Christmas. This is the Sunday. Typically, churches start Advent. The Advent means the coming of or the first coming of Christ. As we lean into this Christmas season, I watched as my neighbors got Christmas lights put up, and, and I'm a slacker. I did other stuff. So, but my neighbors look like Christmas, right? I'll get there. But we know that that season is coming where we anticipate Christ, God, eternal God, the creator God, become flesh and enter into human history. Jesus does so that he can come in and live that completely undefiled, unsinful, completely pure and holy life, and then trade his perfect life 
for our broken lives, that he will take on himself the penalty for our sin. Our uncleanness is taken away by Christ. And so he dies on a cross to cover our sin. He lays in a grave to make sure that sin is defeated. He resurrects from the grave to give us new life. He ascends back to heaven, pours out his spirit upon all who will believe so that we can live the life that he has called us to. And so we live in this space of a reminder that life happens to us and often because of us and draws us away from Christ. But in Christ, we always have that return. Just like Judaism had that way back. And so they're going through this ritual purification, this very thing that points forward to us, to the gospel, to Christ purifying us. There's a verse in 1 John that says this, and everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. That everyone who places their life in Jesus is purified by Christ. We have not only that eternal promise that where our sin is covered, but we also have that day-by-day reminder as we sin, as we wander away, as God convicts us of things and we press in and then fall away, that we can always turn and confess that and that Jesus has already covered our sin. So just consider this purification ritual that these leaders would go through as a foreshadowing of Christ to come, or a reminder and a a teaching tool for us to understand that life happens and draws us out of the presence of God, but God has already provided a way back into his presence. Verse 46. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, that was the leader who led the first wave of returning exiles, And in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. And so it says, listen, this has been, as long as Israel has been, this has existed. That the people owned the responsibility for funding the ministry, and there were leaders that would be raised up, and they would be staffed for this, right? Just like we have here at the church. Right, that we have the staff position to oversee the key things that we, that we do as a church. Right? And, the, and the people, you, all of us, own the responsibility of making sure that that is cared for, funded, that it can happen. Right? And it says that this has gone on since the days of David, since Israel became. Ezra 13, we're going to start in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those who were of foreign descent. So they've made this covenant, right? We're going to prioritize faith in our home. We're not going to marry outside of our faith, right? We're gonna give a day a week to God just as God created us to do. Even before sin entered human history, God created a Sabbath that we need a day of week just devoted to God, just to strengthen us, just to give us what we need for the rest of the week. That we're gonna care for the church, the ministry, the, the, the community, serving the community. And so they, can, they begin to do this, they covenant together And they remember, listen, that there's also this idea that inside of this community, there are people that are pulling the other direction. And so they begin to separate from people 
who are take, drawing them away from God. Now, there's a difference. In modern Christianity, we hear that. Then there's a couple things we need to understand. We don't live in a theocracy ruled by God. We live in a democracy where we vote on things, right? There's a very big difference, right? When God sets the law and says, this is how you're to live, that's a theocracy. When uh, the ultimate leader and ruler is God. Now, I know we blur that in America, but we still, we are a democracy, right? And the second thing is, often in Christianity, we see those who are going the opposite direction than Jesus. We see them as an opportunity to share the gospel with them, and that's good. We should see that. We should love them and want to share Christ with them. That's good. What we can't do is let them draw us off track. They can't, we can't let those that we love on and want to share Christ with draw us away from God. In fact, it should be the other way, that we should live in such a way that draws them to Jesus. And in this setting, what they have is people living inside of Jerusalem that are pulling another direction, if you will. And so they begin to separate themselves from those people. Verse four, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense and the vessels, and the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So here's the problem, right? Eliashib the priest, a Jewish priest, so a leader in their faith, here's what we learn about him. He's been intermarried to an Ammonite, right? Now that's what we talked about a couple times already. Last week, they said, listen, we're gonna prioritize faith in our home. No marriages that, in, that include us following God and a spouse that doesn't, right? We're not gonna do that. Like, our families must be led towards God. And so what we find out is there's a leader who's not doing that, right? In fact, he's married to an Ammonite, a people who have been the enemies of Israel. There's another thing, the storeroom for the funds has been emptied. There was a storeroom, and again, so imagine like today we give, but it's, well, cash isn't big, and most people don't give cash. It's mostly digital, right? You know, it's banking. It's things like, like the contributions today are finances. They're not cattle. They're not grain. They're not rice. They're not herbs, right? So it's different. And so back then, when they would bring real, like tangible things, they would put them in storehouses. And one of those storehouses that was designed to hold the things that were necessary for ministry, the, the grain, the animals, the, the other things that they would need, well, that's been emptied out, right? That's been taken over for another purpose, and here's the purpose. Tobiah, the Ammonite, has moved into that room. And so in the temple area, in the place, the housing for the temple, kind of think modern-day parsonage, right? There's this space that's dedicated for the offerings, for the tithes, for the grain, for all those things. And Tobiah, the, uh, excuse me, the priest moves his brother-in-law, Tobiah, in there, moving out the stuff that is supposed to be done for ministry, stuff that's supposed to be used for ministry. So you can see the breakdown kind of of all sides of the covenant, if you will, right? Faith is not central in his family, and he's a leader, right? He's intermarried into a people that are the enemy of God's people. He's not caring for the ministry of the church, right? Because he's moved that stuff out and moved another guy in. You can see where even the leadership is breaking down the commitments that they had. Verse 6. Well, this was taking place, Nehemiah speaking. He says, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib, the priest, had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. 
So Nehemiah leaves, so he comes in for a purpose. God calls him to come in and rebuild the community. And so he comes in, he casts a vision to rebuild the walls, which is really a metaphor for rebuilding the entirety of the community. But he rallies the entire city and the the people of God to rebuild these gigantic walls that would wall them in and make them a safe city again. While doing so, they're recommitting to their faith and understanding themselves in light of this rebuilding. So Nehemiah comes in and does this. He casts that vision for this. The people accomplish this. When they get it all together, they have this massive worship service. They read from the law trying to figure out, okay, how do we prevent us wandering away again? What is it that God is calling us to? Nehemiah helps put those things in place. They draw up the covenant. They sign those things together. They make this large commitment for the whole community. And then Nehemiah, as promised, goes back to Susa, the capital of Babylon, where his life and job was. And while he's gone, he finds out about these other things and he returns. It says, when he returned, he discovered the evil we just talked about. Verse eight, Nehemiah says, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. You gotta love Nehemiah, right? He gets back and he's like that angry girlfriend that got cheated on, everything is outside, (laughs) right? Tobiah comes home to all his stuff on the front lawn, right? Super cool, right? Didn't box up anything. Just out, right? He says, I was very angry, and I threw all his household furniture out. Verse 9, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, the grain offering, and the frankincense, right? So Nehemiah fixes the problem, and after having this guy living in there, throwing him out, they go through this purification. They cleanse the room. They kind of A man just kind of cleaning through that in a sense of repentance and restoring it to what it was supposed to be, a space dedicated for storing up the things that they needed for ministry. Verse 10, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So what's happening when in not storing up the stuff necessary for, me, for ministry, which often was food for the people that were doing it vocationally, they quit paying people. And so the people that were supposed to help lead the people in worship aren't getting paid. And so they're leaving their ministry jobs, if you will, to go back to their own fields for food. So this one guy comes in, he's supposed to be a leader, and he's not really living the very things that they're talking about. And we see this because first and foremost, in his home, he's not living it. He's married to someone who doesn't worship God. His family, who's being given priority, doesn't worship God, in fact, is the enemy of God's people. Drawing them away, a guy who's been a problem the entire book of Nehemiah. And because of that, he's letting them in, and they move stuff out that they need, stuff that would care for other people, people that are doing the ministry, helping serve the community in their faith, and he moves this guy in. And then he just stops paying them, and so now they have to return to work so that they can eat, and you can just see as the ministry is just slowly declining, and the people of God are just kind of moving further and further away from where God had called them to be. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials, Nehemiah says, and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and sat them in their station, set them in their stations. Nehemiah gets all the leadership together and he's kind of checking them on, hey, why is this happening? 
listen, your job was to make sure this continued and this guy's completely derailed everything. Verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Nehemiah says, and I appointed the treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zechor, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So Nehemiah comes in, calls everybody out that's supposed to be in charge, and appoints new leaders. Said, so listen, these guys will get the job done, right? They will oversee this, and they start receiving the, the tithes and the offerings again. And what I love here is it's not like the people are arguing with this. It's not like the people that are worshiping God are not giving, right? It's not like they don't want to be a part of this. What's going on is the leadership dropped the ball because this one guy kind of moved everything out of this room and moved his buddy in. That's just this kind of crumbling from the top. And the other leaders, they don't fix it, right? They don't do anything about this situation. And so when we get down to the people in this case, which isn't always true, but in this case, the people are actually on board and want to do the right thing. And so they're just not being given that opportunity to do that. So Nehemiah changes that, puts new leaders in, the people respond and worship again begins to grow and flourish in Jerusalem. Verse 14, Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. There's this idea where Nehemiah's like, I hope that the effort that I've put out, that you remember it, God, like, there's a sense of frustration in what he says, right? Remember my effort because my effort's here, but sometimes it doesn't always work out, right? But you remember that, that I tried, right? And you just kind of sense in Nehemiah this level of frustration that he's encountering as the people rally to this, but then a leader just kind of derails some of it. You have to fix the very things you've already fixed before. We've been doing this series through Acts on Sunday nights, every other Sunday night, and then our community groups have picked that up on the weeknights that they gather together. And really what we're doing is we're not studying the book of Acts, we're studying the church in Acts and, and asking deeper questions about what the church was designed to be and to do. And the idea there as we have this conversation is what is it that we are called to either be or do that we're not? Or, or what are we called not to do, maybe, that we're doing? And, and how do we do this? And, and there's this, this kind of collective, what's been really good, is there anywhere between 30 and 60 people on a given night, we're gathering together, and the conversation is very unified. Like, it's very, everybody's seeing where we want to go and sensing what God is saying. And there's this, this kind of synergy in it, right? This, this working together towards what God wants for us. And it's amazing. But this moment in, in Nehemiah's life is kind of the opposite, right? It's kind of that, like we know we're supposed to go, but then people are working against it. And that layer of frustration, if you will. So here's a note for you. After changes are made, Nehemiah helps reform the sinful habits of the people, but they slide back into the same sins. How do we learn from this? How do we, what do we do, excuse me, to ensure change, right? This is true for us individually. How do I assess my life? Like, where do I need to change? And then once you make some of those changes, how are we checking in on that? How are we 
kind of maintain or measuring or keeping an eye on, am I still headed the right direction, right? Am I, am I still listening to God? Am I, have I slipped into bad habits or am, am I still on track? And there's a sense of us doing this corporately. This is a corporate issue. Yes, there are individuals that are doing wrong things, but this is a collective slide. There's a priest who drops the ball completely and probably on purpose, but then there's a leadership who doesn't fix it, and there's a people that don't call out for it, right? There's a, a sense this is a corporate issue, a body issue, a community issue. And we have individual problems and sins and places where we get drawn off, but because we live in the same community, because we live in, here in Southern California in America and in this time, in this space, we have some common struggles too. And we have some common things we overlook and so how do we stay focused? How do we stay on track? And really, the lesson is in Nehemiah, and it, it is in what we're doing. We keep going back to Scripture and reminding ourselves of what God has called us to, what Jesus commissioned the church to be, what Jesus has called us to be. It's like that purification ritual that they have to keep going through as leaders as they enter back in. They remember that the world kind of happens to them and that they need to be cleansed before they go back in. Like we need to remember that, you know, sometimes we slip back into patterns and habits. Sometimes we learn something that we didn't know before and it draws us near and we have to walk through that process of repentance and cleansing or return. So Nehemiah is leading the people through this. Verse 15, he says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grape, figs, and all those kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So here's what happens. Nehemiah kind of fixes one thing. He's still in town. And a Sabbath, a, a, a weekend comes up the day that the people have committed to giving to God, and here's what happened in the middle of the marketplace, it's like business is normal, it's like a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning. And so he sees this and people are bringing in food and selling food and doing all this work, he's like, wait a minute, one of the three things we committed to was giving a day to God, that we were gonna take a day outside of work, outside of other things, outside of hobbies, outside of things we gotta do at home, and we were gonna dedicate one day a week to God. But we're not doing this. And he sees them not doing it. Verse 16, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Notice the exclamation point. He's like, I can't believe they're doing this, right? Verse 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So profaning the Sabbath, the other part of Sabbath, it's not just what you don't do, right? It's also what you do, it's pressing into God, right? It's, it's what you don't do, you don't work, you don't do your other things, it's, it's a day spent reconnecting with God, taking your family, being a family, spending time with the family of faith, right? The church, or in this case, the temple, and collectively being with God. But on the other side of that is, you don't let people that aren't there to worship in, 
right? Like you don't let other people that are coming in to sell stuff and do stuff that would draw you outside of that. So not only just you don't do it, but you don't allow others not to do it in that moment either. Now, these others could come in and buy and sell every other day of the week. It wasn't that they were prevented. What they were being called to do is prevent them from drawing them off track, but they're not, right? So profaning the Sabbath, to profane means to make common. A Sabbath is not like any other day, but it's all about taking one day a week to honor God. Think of like kind of the way you plug your phone in at night to recharge everything so you're set for the next day. Or if you don't, Alex, you should. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, uh, so it's one of those things where you know you need to be prepared for the day ahead, right? For the week ahead, for the the life that is lived in front of you. It's taking that time and spending that time with God to build you up and set you up for the rest of the week. I actually have never seen Alex's phone die, but he was sitting there. So, you know. He repents. <laughs> Profane means to make something common. We should hear that today. Profaning the Sabbath means treating it like a common day. Treating it like any other day of the week when it's not that there is a day that is to be unique, not common. Holy is another word for that. Holy meaning set apart for God, not common, right? Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So he sets up a change, they're gonna shut the gates, they're not going to open them until the Sabbath is over. Verse 20. But when the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, then they did once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Again, you kind of got to love Nehemiah, right? Like, do it again, I'm putting hands on you. That's what he tells them, right? Now you know why I like Nehemiah better than Ezra. Here's a quote from Ezra in Ezra 9.3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Nehemiah says, listen, you do this, I'll pull your hair out. I am unwilling to do that to mine. He says, listen, you camp out there again, I'm gonna come out and put hands on you. You're not gonna do this. It says they did it once or twice and then stopped. Now, I don't know if Nehemiah has anger issues and needs therapy, but... It's effective, right? Call it what it will, and it's a holy anger, if there is one, for sure it's for the right reasons. As he calls them to listen, you've got to hear how convicted we are to do what God has called us to do. And if you don't hear that, I'm going to make sure you hear that when you wake up, right? Verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, purify yourselves. Go through this process. Remind yourself that always, we always get drawn off track and we can come back. God has provided a way back to keep the Sabbath day holy. In other words, not common or profane. Remember, Nehemiah says, this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Like, I tried God, in fact, I threatened the entire outside world with violence. I gave it my best shot, right? But you can hear again in his voice, there's a frustration. Like, why is this such a struggle? 
right? And, and we all feel that personally. We feel that sense of struggle in our lives. We feel that in places where we lead. If you're a parent, you feel that as a parent. Like, why is this such a struggle? It's so clear. It's not hard to do. Why? Well, it's because we're broken inside. Because we're all sinful and corrupt inside. And, and we don't do a good job of highlighting how broken we actually are. But that's the answer to the question. It's because inside our heart keeps pulling us back to wrong places. Verse 23 says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, right? Another part of the covenant they made, not to marry outside the faith. And Ashdod, Ammon, all these other places, these worship false idols, didn't worship God. And he says, I'm starting to see this again. Verse 24, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, how do you think speaking only another language would aid you in going into the temple and worshiping in Hebrew, right? Well, they couldn't. And so this marriage thing, it isn't about marriage. It isn't about the color of their skin. It's really not about the language they speak. It's about the fact that there are kids now being raised in Jerusalem that are being raised not to worship God. Or, let me say that better, they're not being raised to worship God. And it's, you can see that they're following the, the spouse, the mom who doesn't worship God, or the dad who doesn't worship God, and they speak the language of that other culture. Again, America is not a good example of this. We're a melting pot of place, a melting pot of places and people. And worship today, all over the country, will happen in countless languages, right? It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with language. It has everything to do with worship and the centrality of faith in the home. When that's not central, the children don't follow it, right? Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some and pulled out their hair. I'm just gonna leave that alone. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? There's one thing there that we just gotta, we have to see, right? Solomon chose who he married, right? He made the decision, I'm going to marry this one and this one, and, and after Solomon has this kind of early life where he is just on track, focused on God, and married, and just some things happen in his life, and he kind of grenades, right? He, over time, stays with God. He ends up writing uh, our wisdom literature in the Bible, right, later in his life, but there's this time where he just kind of spreads everything else thin. He pursues the world he lives in. He returns back to God. In that time, he married hundreds of women. Some of them were political alliances. Some of them were, so I'm sure, over what they looked like. Some of them, I'm sure, were for riches and power and influence, right? The same things happen today. Whenever we get married and it's not with faith, at the front with faith as foremost, there's other reasons. What they look like or the family you're marrying into or whatever. 
But when faith isn't foremost, it draws you off track. And here's what happened with Solomon. He married all these women, had kids with these women. He's married to all these women. He's not at home every night with all these kids. And so what were they raised to do? Well, they, they were raised to worship the idols and the false worship of the, home, of the mom who was at home with them. And the, the series of kings after Solomon are a litany of kings who don't worship God. And it's because of this decision here of not making faith central in the home. We'll put this note on the screen, faith in the homes. Marrying outside the faith meant and still does that something other than faith is a greater priority. Prioritizing faith in marriage grows the entire family in faith. Marrying with faith as the priority, worship as a priority, your belief system as a priority around faith and who you believe Jesus to be when that is central, your children will be taught that. When anything else is central, they'll be taught something else. And so the people fall into this trap one more time. Verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-of-law of Sanballat the Horonite, another person who's been a problem since chapter one or chapter two of Nehemiah. Therefore, I chased him from me. I just love Nehemiah. Verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He walks back through and eliminates the people that are not on track. Right, that are not doing, that are not keeping the covenant commitment they all made. And so he gets rid of them, brings everybody back through a cleansing process, right? Reminding them that everybody gets pulled away from God, but there's a way back. God has already provided a way back. And he sets everything in a place again, and he says, remember me, God. Remember me. I don't know where they're gonna turn out. I don't know what they're gonna do, but right now we're on track, right? Our effort is in the right place. And I think Nehemiah is just recognizing his, maybe his own frustration, but also the tendency inside the human heart to wander away. There's a famous quote by John Calvin roughly 500 years ago that says, our heart is a perpetual factory of idols that we churn out idols day after day. We create things we wanna give worship to and that it's just embedded in our sinful hearts. And that it will be a lifelong struggle. But the good news is that God has already provided a way back, right? That God has provided a process to return. And whether you're not a follower of Jesus, then the process is that Jesus wants to welcome you in, right? If you've never been a follower of Jesus, we would say this, let's do that, right? Let's be that. Ask Jesus to forgive your sin, teach you how to live for him, to fill you with his spirit, become baptized and, and, and follow Jesus, right? Like that would be if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you just find yourself wandering away, I would say the same thing. Listen, the, the way back is already provided, right? The, the way back is today, the, the way back is now. It's be honest with God about your distance. Be honest with God about you're being drawn away or you're choosing to walk away. Ask for that forgiveness. You've already been forgiven, but, but confess that or receive that forgiveness from Jesus. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus who's been walking with Jesus for many, many years, you, you already know this. That's all of us, right? That's all of us all the time. And what we need to learn is that all of us corporately also wander away. That we wander away as a community, as a body, as a church. And that we rely on those who are, who are invested in their faith, who have been believers for a long time to help us draw back, to return back to what Christ has called us to. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. You are the way back that God has already provided. You're the one who came and lived the life without flaw that we're all called to live, but we all fail. You are the one who gave your life and traded it for ours. You took your perfect and sinless and holy life for our profane lives and you traded. And you've invited us all in and you teach us that yes, we wander away and yes, the world gets all over us. But the way to be clean is through you. The way to return to the full presence of the Father is you. And not only have you taught us this and, and accomplished this on our behalf, but it's your ascension. You poured out your spirit to live inside of us, to transform us and renew us and teach us and lead us and guide us. Holy Spirit, will you do just that? Will you draw us near, nearer and nearer to the Father? That we would inherit all that we have been given through Christ and the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we move back into worship, I want to invite you to respond today, whatever that might look like. Maybe that's responding by just standing up and worshiping, and, and maybe you close your eyes and you lift your hands. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you would like someone to pray for you. Our elders are here. I'm here. Maybe you just want a place to pray, just to kind of go through kind of that symbolic motion of setting apart this time. We have a cross in the back, and we would love for you to be able to respond today in a way that would help you live as God has called you to live. Will you guys stand with me as we move back into worship?